Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. Glad you're back with us today as we study the Bible for the next 30 minutes. And the way we do that is try to find answers to your questions. So if you're a first-time viewer, uh, you may have something you've always wondered about. Uh, is that in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible? Uh, what's that mean that people talk about from the Bible? So any of those kind of questions, we'd be happy to try to answer. You'll notice there's a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. You can use those anytime to get in touch with us, let us know what you'd like us to talk about, and we'll try to find you a Bible answer so that we can all know our Bible a little bit better. And when I say we will be answering questions, I mean my partner Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. I'm Steve Tandy, and we're here to try to answer as many as we can today. So uh, we always start with one for our viewers, so you get the first one. Here's your question for the day. What son replaced Abel after his murder? Everybody, I think, knows that Cain killed Abel, but uh, what son replaced him? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. See if you know that bit of Bible information. And I think Toby drew the first one today. So I did indeed. And I always appreciate get us, these, get these, us going. these kind of questions. A viewer simply ask, where does it say to respect those in authority and obey the law? We appreciate the the heart of those questions of people who ask, where does it say? They just want us to tell them, point them out where it is in the book, and this one we can point directly to, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and we have it for the screen uh, for you, on the screen for you. You can read along or turn in your Bible at home. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, um, some people might balk at that a little bit. They maybe I, you don't like who's in power. Maybe you don't agree with the laws or something. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. It just says God established government for the purpose of of keeping us from living in chaos uh, gives us structure, gives us laws, gives us boundaries to live within in our society. And so we, as special, especially as Christ followers, uh, you may not like the laws today, but consider the Christians living in the first century. I mean, they had some pretty serious things that they were facing, persecution and things like that, and the, the, the admonition was still the same. Respect those in authority and obey them. So Romans 13, 1 and 2, uh, and there's also a passage in First Timothy where we're commanded to pray for those in authority, and I think that's a good uh, uh, thing to remember in our walk, not only to be subject to them, but to pray for them to make the right decision. So I hope that helps you, Romans 13, 1 and 2. All righty. Uh, got a question about purgatory. If you ever want to know, is there a purgatory? And where is it in the Bible? Well, we'll start with the second part first. Uh, you can't find purgatory in the Bible, so therefore 
the answer to the first question, is there a purgatory? Uh, certainly not according to the Bible. It is a doctrine uh, taught, I think, exclusively by the, the Catholic Church that it's a, a place where people, souls that have not completely had their sins paid for some way uh, spend some time and people on earth can pray for them and uh, get their souls out of purgatory somehow. And I don't understand all the details because, like I said, it's not in the Bible. Um, but beyond not being in the Bible... Uh, the Bible indicates that it's not a possibility. <clears throat> the Bible talks about people dying, and after that, the judgment doesn't talk about an intermediate state. Uh, perhaps the clearest that could help us figure this out is in Second Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 8. Paul says this, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay. Uh, so there's the two options. That's what, the way Paul looked at it, is we're in the body, uh, we're away from the Lord. When we leave the body, when we die, then we go to be with the Lord. Uh, he doesn't mention anything about an intermediate state or a, a, <clears throat> a pause between that. You die and you go to be with the Lord. So, uh, no, the Bible does not teach anything about a purgatory, and we don't believe such a place exists. All right, a question concerning a phrase in Scripture. As you read along in Genesis, this viewer asked the question, when God said, let us make man in our image, did that mean physical or spiritual image. Well, uh, you're going to find this, uh, and what the viewer has read is right, and it, it draws out the question uh, very naturally. But let's look at the verse from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 on the screen, and it says there, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right. So the question naturally is, what, what are we talking about when we say we're made in God's image? What exactly does that entail? And then we begin to think along on a human level, because we, we think oh, that's the only way we can think. Um, if you're a parent, you have children, uh, they're obviously your children carry some biological similarities to you. They might look like you. They might have mannerisms like you. They might have hair color and eye color, skin color similar to yours. That's natural. We expect that. So what is God saying when he says, let us make man in our image? Do we? Do, does he have our appearance? Do, does God have a certain hair color, skin color, eye color? Uh, what, what does that all mean? It, it, it can easily get confusing if we don't think about it in the right way. Now, this verse will not be on your screen, but let me encourage you to turn to John chapter 4, verse 24. And Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman, and there's a larger context to the story. But within that conversation, he says something that's important to this question, and it's this. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we must think very carefully and consider that when God, we consider who God is, we understand that He is a spirit. He doesn't take a fleshly form. Uh, he doesn't have a, a skin color, a hair color, an eye color. He doesn't look a certain way. In fact, if you want to go one step deeper, 
it, I don't think it's possible for us to see God with our physical eyes unless He chose to reveal Himself in a physical way. But in His nature, He is spirit. And so when the Scripture is talking about God saying, let us make man in our own image, what He's referring to there, there too is that there is an eternal aspect to human beings. That, that in all the created order, there's something within us that continues forever. We call that the soul. And that reminds us that human beings are created physical beings, but we're also created <clears throat> spiritual beings. The scriptures say in Psalms that before I, uh, rather uh, to Jeremiah, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Okay, so we understand that there's a, a, a something that that is us that it goes on beyond our physical self. And that's the part where we are made in God's image. Every human being that's ever lived, is, is ever living, that will ever live, made in God's image. We all have an eternal soul that's very, very valuable and precious to God. So I uh, hope that helps you understand just a little bit what it means to be made in God's image. All right. Thank you, Toby. Uh, we're studying the Bible with you for 30 minutes and answering a few questions, but uh, everybody watching probably has a lot more questions about the Bible. And that's one reason that we advocate home Bible study and talk about some different ways to study the Bible uh, so that you can find your own answers to questions. Uh, we've got some Bible study tools that are great ways to get familiar with your Bible. Here's a set that we usually start people out with. There are eight lessons in it. And, uh, just a real basic overview of the Bible and helps you get familiar with the Old Testament, the New Testament, and what's in the Bible. Well, we've got other courses that we're happy to send people through the mail. Uh, four different ones here that we have as advanced courses that take a little longer and get into more detail. Uh, so we've got a lot of ways to study the Bible. We've recently added a uh, online study that makes it easy for you to study with your phone or tablet or PC and just sit down and work through it quickly. Uh, pretty handy way to study the Bible. So use that website that we have up there and that'll put you in touch with that online Bible study. Uh, happy to provide all of this, absolutely free of charge. Uh, we even pay the postage on the mailed lessons. So if you want to study the Bible and learn more about your Bible, Call the number on the screen or use one of those websites and we'll get it started for you. All right, we have a question about uh, Christians and are some people really Christians? Interesting question. The way the viewer worded it was this, there are so many groups uh, that call themselves Christians. Are they all Christians? Well, uh, in one sense, if a group calls themselves Christian, a person calls themselves Christian, uh, puts a sign out in front of a building, says this is a Christian organization, uh, that at least tells us <laughs> that they intend to follow Christ instead of all the other options, uh, instead of Buddha or Muhammad or some other religion, <clears throat> they claim to be Christ followers. So. Uh, I'd say in that sense, at least it gives us that indication. But our viewers say, oh, there really are Christians. Now, that's a little different question. Now, let me read you a passage, and maybe that can help us figure out the answer. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21, Jesus was talking to the people, and he said this, Not everyone 
who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, he's talking about the judgment day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Uh, now, it's kind of a harsh statement, but if you think about what Jesus is saying, he says there's a lot of people that call him Lord and even claim to do great works in his name. But he says, I never knew you. Okay, So I think that answers our question. Uh, not everybody who calls themselves a Christian is really in a relationship with Christ. Uh, they're, they're not real Christians, if you want to say it like our viewer asked. Now, let me add this to my answer. Uh, I can answer that question, no. Not everybody that calls themselves a Christian is a real Christian. But beyond that, <laughs> getting into saying who is and who isn't, uh, that's above my pay grade. Uh, God will handle that just fine. Uh, deciding, yes, that person's a real Christian, that one's not, I think he is, I think he's not, uh, that's a whole different matter. So in the big picture, I can say, yes, from what Jesus said, uh, not everybody is a real Christian. But deciding who and making those lines is it's pretty tough. Uh, I know we can look at people's fruits and we can tell a lot of things about it, uh, but the judging and the separating uh, will be handled at the judgment day. In fact, Jesus told a parable about that, remember? He talked about the weeds being in the wheat, and he said, uh, you know, going out and trying to get all the weeds out right now uh, will mess up the wheat, too. It's a hard job, so just leave it, and that's the harvest. Uh, the harvest master will take care of it. He'll know what's the good wheat, and he'll know what the weeds are, and he'll burn the weeds up. Uh, but to try to pick it all out now is beyond us. So I uh, went a little beyond what our viewer wanted to know, but hopefully that helps us think about that one a little bit. <laughs> all right. Uh, the next question is uh, another deeper question. We've got a thinker submitting this question. They say, if your soul goes to paradise when you die... Who are the dead in Christ uh, who rise when he comes again? All right. Well, this is, uh, like I say, a deeper question. It was one definitely that the early church was concerned about. If you read through the scripture, I think particularly in 1 Corinthians, uh, there were apparently many folks in that church who were very concerned about those who had, quote-unquote, fallen asleep. Now, that was a euphemism for those who had died, and they were concerned that they had died before Jesus returned. Uh, the, the dead in Christ, as your, as your question asks about, are those who were faithful to Jesus and died and are awaiting his return. And where do they wait? Okay, well, obviously the body <clears throat> remains on earth. The soul uh, goes to uh, the place that the, the Jews referred to as, the ha as Hades, which is the realm of the dead. And it, it's we don't get much insight into it. Jesus told a story in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, which gives us the clearest detail into what the Hadean realm looks like. And so there's, there's the rich man. He goes to a place of torment. He's in agony. He's in pain. He's just, he begs just to have someone put a, a drop of water on his tongue. He's in such agony uh, on the side of torment. Then there's a huge 
chasm between. And on the other side, uh, clearly he's able to see uh, there is there is a place called Abraham's side. Another place for it is called Paradise. And uh, this is where the beggar... Um, uh, Lazarus was, and he was there, and, and the rich man obviously recognized him and all that. There's this interaction, but we, we kind of get some insight into the Hadean realm. I'm not going to go into the details of the story, but just to say there there is a place for those that die before Jesus' return, and it is the Hadean realm, and the scriptures say, after you die, you know, it's pretty much determined where you're going. So that those who are going to uh, victory, uh, their eternal reward when Jesus comes, they're going to paradise. Those who uh, did, were not in Christ, were not faithful to the Lord, uh, they're going to be in a place of torment. Now, these two places are very different, obviously, but... the both of those are awaiting Jesus' final return, the judgment day, the, the, the day, by the way, that we're still waiting for. And the scriptures say that the dead in Christ will rise, will uh, be resurrected, and go to this final judgment when he returns. So the, to answer your question, the dead in Christ are those who are faithful to Jesus and are still awaiting his return. Now, First Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17 gives us a, a little bit of uh, insight into the judgment day. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel with the, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. These are those who have already died, who are coming out of the realm of the dead, out of Hades, to, to their final reward. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... We will be with the Lord forever. Okay. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, obviously, it probably gives us more questions, but that's the answer to your question, is the dead in Christ are those who are faithful to Jesus and are still awaiting His return. Their soul exists somewhere in the Hadean realm, uh, in the realm we call paradise or Abraham's sight. All right, a question about adoption. A viewer says that she adopted children and wondered if it talks about adoption in the Bible. Well, interesting question. The Bible, the Bible really doesn't use that term or talk about it very much. It mentions it at least one place that I could find, Acts chapter 7 and verse 21, talking about Moses. Uh, they're telling the story of Moses, and it says he wasn't, wasn't an ordinary child. And it tells when he was put out into the Nile River uh, that Pharaoh's daughter took him and raised her as his, her own son. Uh, one translation says Pharaoh's daughter adopted him as her own son. So there's one story of adoption, at least in the Bible. Uh, but the principle of adoption, of, of taking a child that doesn't have parents or uh, needs parents and uh, receiving them into your home, that principle is throughout the Bible. Uh, the Bible does talk a lot about that. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 5, Jesus said, Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Uh, so Jesus talked about that being a good thing, to take a child, to receive a child, to be kind to a child. Uh, in Psalm chapter 68, verses 5 and 6, uh, God, and I think this is very important, God calls himself a father to the fatherless. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about fatherless 
children and how they need parents. And God himself pictures himself as a father to the fatherless. So adoption's a good thing. Uh, perhaps the clearest passage that uh, talks about adoption or the principle of adoption is James chapter 1 and verse 27. Let's look at that on the screen together. Uh, James said, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So that's a pretty powerful statement. God says here, this is pure religion uh, to look after orphans, to take care of orphans. So uh, people who adopt certainly do that and they kind of ultimate way, take a a child into their home and share their very lives with them. So, yeah, the Bible does talk about the principle of adoption. Uh, Let me add just one other verse that I thought of, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. When Paul is describing the love of God, the way he explains it in one way, is that God adopted us as his own. Uh, so God calls himself a father to the fatherless, but his love is best expressed by describing him adopting us as children. So, yes, the Bible is very pro-adoption. Uh, it talks a lot about that principle of caring for children. And uh, if you've done that, I think you can be uh, sure that you've made a difference in someone's life and certainly conform to God's picture of pure religion take this moment and invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. Uh, We're sponsored by the Churches of Christ, kept on the air by uh, many different Churches of Christ around the viewing areas. And let me mention a couple this week that uh, support us and our partners. Uh, The Watermill Church of Christ in Springfield, Missouri. A great bunch of folks there that uh, work with us on the program that's broadcast out of Springfield. And then up in Burlington, Iowa, the broadcast comes from Rock Island. Uh, The folks in Burlington, Iowa are our partners up there and help us with some of the mechanics of keeping the program on. A great bunch of folks there, too. So we invite you to visit either of those if you live in one of those communities. Uh, Maybe you live in one of those towns and you know somebody that attends the Watermill or the Burlington Church of Christ. Uh, Tell them you heard about them on Know Your Bible, that you watch the program, and you appreciate them providing it for you. Okay, a viewer asked the question about worship, and they ask, on what day of the week should we worship God? Well, there's there's two ways I'm thinking of this, and I think I know the way you're asking it, but um, I want to kind of answer it on a large scale and then, then directly as I, as I assume you're asking the question. Uh, there's one sense in which we're to worship God every day. Uh, Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. There's a day-to-day aspect of your life in which you are not only following Jesus, but submitting your life to Him. Your heart is changing, which means your actions are changing in the way it impacts those around you. And uh, the Apostle Paul says, you know, every day you're sacrificing yourself, you're laying down what you want and beginning by asking, what does God want? And that's, in in the big sense, every day a Christian is to worship. You worship how you, with how you are devoting yourself to the Lord, to the Word, 
and by submitting your life to that. Now, I don't think that's the sense in which you were asking the question. Uh, I think you were asking the question in terms of corporate worship, public worship, and that's uh, a different thing than your private, personal, daily walk with Jesus, but obviously that's got to be every day. That's important. And if you're just going to worship one day a week, but the other six days there's no transformation, uh, you're, missing, you're missing out on what worship is really about. So uh, keep that in mind. As far as the day when Christians collectively came together to do what the church has always done, to sing praises to the Lord and pray to the Lord, uh, give to one another, support one another, uh, partake of, of the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, the, the uh, hearing from the, the Word, studying the, the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, uh, all of those elements of public worship we see in uh, the early church. And at every picture that we have of early Christianity, that always happened on the first day of the week. Now, that's a, that's a transformation from the, the Sabbath. That's a difference. You know, the, the Jews were worship used to that holy day, that seventh day of the week. But then in the New Covenant, we see a beautiful uh, thing happen with the, the, those who follow Jesus and the early church it was that they began to worship on the first day of the week. Um, you can look at some scriptures. These will not be on the screen, but for you to look up at home, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Now, this is not any ordinary meal. That was a term speaking about of the communion that they shared together as the church. Not a building, but a people. They came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking till midnight. So there's a gathering of the church on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside money in keeping with his income. Paul speaking there toward the, the collection of the churches and supporting the work of the church and the missions and the ministry of the church. Well, he specifically points out on the first day of the week, when I know you're going to be coming together, when I know you're going to be meeting together. Well, why is that? Why, why are they always meeting on the first day of the week? Well, I think there's a very important reason, because a very significant event happened on the first day of the week it's what Christians celebrate. It's what gives us our hope. It's the reason that we meet together to remind us of the common hope that we have in Jesus. Not just His death, not just His burial, those are important, but His resurrection. The day that He came out of the tomb was on the first day of the week. And so Christians gather together on that day, on the first day, uh, all over the world to commemorate what Jesus did for them. Let's look very quickly. Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, the very first first day, if you will. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And, we'll go ahead, I guess that was the end of it, <laughs> um, had been rolled away. So they, they began to celebrate the resurrection, and they uh, acknowledged uh, there in the early church that was a huge part of it. And that's why we meet on the first day of the week, to celebrate uh, the resurrection, the victory in Jesus. All right, let's make sure we get our trivia question answered today. We wanted to know what son replaced Abel. 
after his murder, and that was Seth, was the one that God blessed Eve with and replaced Abel. We're glad that you've been with us today, and I uh, hope you got your answer to your question. If not, tune in next week, and we'll be back with more questions. Thanks for being with us. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.